Katera. How's it going? Hey, Karis. It's going well. How about you? You know, okay. I'm, I'm glad when we ask each other how it's going, we can really say how it's going. <laughs> so I can stop and think without just saying, oh, yeah, it's great. And it's good. But you know what? It is actually great because I'm talking to you. So that's always cool. Awesome. Likewise. Yeah. And, you know, I've known you for ever. I was going to say I've known you since you've come out of the womb, but that is so not true. But I've known you for a really, <laughs> I've known you for a long time, kind of in the mental health advocacy world. I have, I cannot recall how we met. However, oh, I do know. I do know. I'll, t- I'll say later. But why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just honored to be here today with you. Um, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I was born in Afghanistan and came to this country as a refugee. I was a toddler when we escaped the Afghan-Soviet war. And it was a time, you know, growing up, we, I was going to school. My parents couldn't work. We were on Section 8 you know, housing, food stamps, we depended on the government to support us. And, and so I struggled Mm -hmm. with the two different cultures, one needing to learn English and work within the school system and in our communities, and then one at home where I couldn't speak any English. And I grew up as the interpreter for my parents. Mm -hmm. And, And at a very young age, a soon as I started learning English, I, I was their interpreter. And that was um, a difficult experience for me. But it also gave me the experience to speak up when I saw injustices, because we couldn't, you know, my parents couldn't speak English. And I learned from a young age, how to speak up for my parents, that was like my trigger, if anybody treated them badly, I knew to say something because I didn't want anybody to be treated badly, let alone my mother or father. And um, I struggled with mental health challenges um, as a child. And, but I also had opportunities like, you know, because we were the largest population of Afghans outside of Afghanistan and Fremont, we had things where, you know, we had a community Mm-hmm. where our values were respected, our religion was respected, our, our culture was respected. And in the high school, I went to American high school mm-hmm. in Fremont, and I was the Afghan club president. <laughs> Started off as a junior, actually um, beat the senior going for that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so both years I was the Afghan club president, and, and I found my passion through bringing people together to uplift positive messages. And, and that was like my first experience in leadership and, and also peer support. Mm-hmm. I needed to connect with other young Afghan girls that, that struggled and had the same challenges that I did that I could talk to and they wouldn't judge me for what I went through. Mm-hmm. That gave me the first taste of what I wanted to pursue in my life. And, but I didn't know it very, you know, I was Mm -hmm. confused. I went into college and I, I struggled. I was in an arranged marriage. Wow. That I did not know. Yep. yep. That was, uh, I myself kind of shocked. And and I think I was in a place where I really wanted to make my family happy and do what was 
culturally right. And I realized, you know, we were not the right fit. And I was able to get out of that, which was very difficult. Mm. I had um, afterwards lost connection with my family for two years. I was deeply depressed and struggled alone. And I was working in the mental health system also at that point. And, and I, at one point or another, I can't recall when, but I was exposed to wellness recovery action planning and started going to like the, the, the community events and got exposed to more of the peer movement. And one day Jay Mahler came and presented at this, uh, at the place I worked at it just opened up my eyes. I, I heard people talking about their journey and overcoming mental health challenges and coming together to make positive changes. And I had always been passionate about that, like mm-hmm. uplifting people and bringing them together and working to make our communities better. And from there, I you know, got involved with peers you know, a, a pretty well-known uh, peer-run organization. You were, and that's you know, how we got to director. know. Yes, that's. <laughs> I was thinking, how do we get to know each other? And it was because I had become the executive director, CEO of Project Return Peer Support Network, and I was looking for other directors of peer agencies to kind of, so I could figure out like, how do I do this? What do I do? Like, why create a wheel if somebody else is doing it? And that's actually how we met is you were, you were at peers. Yeah. When you were talking to about, um, again, sort of having an arranged marriage, which, okay, that's brand new information. (laughs) Do you think that the mental health system understood some of the, you know, cultural tensions and how to support you in, your recovery or your journey to recovery? Or were you able to speak openly about that at the time? Oh, gosh, at the time when I worked in uh, a mental health facility, uh, it also was right after 9-11. And Mm. I was an intern. And I was told not to share about where I was from. And, you know, this is coming from, you know, in high school and in college, I was involved with, you know, my community. And then to come into my employment and to hear from people, their fear put onto me and telling me to not represent myself. Like, I thought that was really a huge blow to my, you know, confidence of, of wanting to connect with people and being authentic mm-hmm. and caring, right? Mm-hmm. You share about yourself. I'm hearing about other people's stories. And I always felt like it's only fair to share when appropriate, obviously, but like there was a mutual relationship going on and w- people would ask, I didn't want to hide. And so that was really difficult to, to, um, balance that out in the mental Mm -hmm. health system. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, experienced in the mental health system, I was my mom's interpreter for her psychiatrist appointment. So uh, I was a child starting at seven interpreting. And I don't think that was something that was appropriate for me to do because that put a lot of pressure onto me. I worried it, it created a unique dynamic between my mother and myself. You know, here I am you know, sharing about her, but also not knowing how to 
balance the information that I'm getting from her yeah. and the questions that I was getting from the psychiatrist. And I, I remember in Farsi one time, I'd be like, but you're struggling with this. I, you know, I know, mom, you, you ask you a question about what you're struggling with. Your response is nothing. <laughs> and wow. I don't know how to ask, respond with that. I mean, obviously respected her. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I remember speaking to her in Farsi, like, is that really what you want me to say? <laughs> she was like, yes. <laughs> it's so it's so awkward. I mean, it puts you in such an awkward position where your mother needs to be as open and honest as she feels she can be with the psychiatrist or um, therapist to support and help her. Um, yet she has to, you know, say those things through you as the child. And then you have to then turn around and kind of say it to the therapist without kind of couching it or without kind of having any kind of judgment or anything like that. And I can only imagine, you know, the stress that might put on a mother-daughter relationship. So tell us, what is um, um, RAP, Wellness Recovery Action Plan? Can you want to talk a little bit about what that actually is? Yeah, um, for me, I think the first time I went into a, a group, the first step was coming in together and creating uh, an agreement together. So co-creating, like, how do we want to, you know, share this space? Mm-hmm. And what do I need for my wellness and putting it out there? Um, and what other people, you know, need and supporting each other with just knowing what someone needs for themselves and trusting they'll take the personal responsibility to take care of themselves. And that was the first step is, is setting that foundation of trust. Like we're here in this space and we're going to talk about things that are about mental health, but also about wellness and about planning to stay well and be well and keep our supporters in the loop. The goal is the crisis plan would be shared with your supporters. So in times of crisis, they know your wishes for your wellness because our system sees us when we end up in the crisis setting, they see us at our worst state. They don't know who we are when we're well, what we love, what we're passionate about, what our strengths are. They just see illness, what's wrong with us or what happened to us sometimes, but not the whole picture. And so the wrap plan starts off, even the crisis plan, right, is Mm -hmm. what I'm like when I'm well, to give people a better picture of who we are as a whole person and all of that I really connected with. And the group setting is the other one is I'm not alone. There are other people dealing with multiple things, but we're not alone and we're here together in, in an effort to bring not only wellness for our myself, but group wellness, mutual support. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Yeah, I went from a participant to uh, learning and getting the trainings to become a facilitator and then getting the trainings to be an advanced level facilitator. And then in, in the organization that I ran, we, we, we focused on RAP and making it accessible to anyone that wanted it and also the trainings so that they can see themselves be in those facilitator roles, be in those trainer roles, you know, just that they had opportunities and hope, just like I was given. Right. I remember you all were a center of excellence and I wanted to try to figure out how to have a Southern California version of that um, become this. So we had, that's another way that we collaborated and, you know, 
plotted <laughs> kind of like let's take over yeah. california with rat you do the northern region i'll do the southern region <laughs> and but we'll just do the whole state like together no i really love the idea of rap because it's also in wellness recovery action plan or rap of course because it's also um a living breathing document meaning you know your rap mm-hmm. plan is not like set in stone, you can always go back and revisit it and update it and adjust it as things change for, you know, each person. Um, so, so when I first, you know, tried to do a, a rap plan, okay, I'm going to be honest. I'm sorry, Mary Ellen Copeland, please do not be mad at me. I kind of hated it. <laughs> you know, the concept worked the way to do it. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is so onerous and writing this stuff down. And I just, oh my gosh. Yeah. But what, so what I did instead, and, I, and I've seen some people do this is I like to draw or I like to color. So, or do cutouts. So I would actually, um, you know, my plan would be little cutouts of pictures. So if it was like, what gives you comfort, yeah. it would be a cutout of a, um, not a teddy bear. It would of course be a, um, a stuffed unicorn, um, of course, <laughs> we're unapologetically black unicorn. So I have to have a unicorn. <laughs> so, you know, if I need some, some comfort, I want my stuffed unicorn with me um, or, you know, a picture of my dog or so that's kind of one way I took the, the, the concepts, but made how to implement it work for how I like to think. I think in pictures, I don't always write in pictures. I do write in words, but I, I think in pictures. So it worked for me to do that. I like that story. I can relate to it because I also like I did collages. I enjoyed it. I I wanted to put like you like you said, put pictures together on wellness tools, and and I would write my triggers and other things because I didn't want to look for pictures for those ones. I won't read the words, but I have them written down. Yeah, yeah. I've seen but, uh, young adults do galleries of um, their their rap plans, and they've actually done. Um, yes, they have them written out, and then they actually you know do a lot of artwork around certain aspects of it, and then put on a an art show related to their rap plan, and people can kind of walk through and see what some of the things mean to them of either when they're doing well or what their triggers look like to them and then kind of go from the trigger to, but this is what really helps me be well. So you don't have to stare at the trigger and go, ah, you know, you're kind of also looking at the thing that helps them be better. So I was also thinking about something else. It's so funny, you know, we were going to go one direction with this conversation and we still will, but I was thinking too, when (laughs) um, (laughs) you were running the peer organization, you know, you're very, very creative and the way that um, you all thought about providing support to people um, was just so creative. And I think a lot of times when people think about peer support, if they're not familiar with it, yes, you know, mutual aid models like um, AA models or 12-step models, that is a version of peer support that's mutual aid, kind of doing it from that lived experience, kind of internal gut, kind of, I know, kind of had to be, there's no training involved per se. But um, one of the things that... Um, I think, you know, people then think about is, oh, you know, a bunch of people get around, they have coffee, you know, they eat cookies and they talk. Um, but, but in, I mean, that's what I think people think about when they think peer support, because it's sort of a stereotypical image of a um, mutual aid group. Yet one of the, the, some of the things that you guys were doing were, were just really, really interesting from developing games. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. I've been blessed to be in a community where there's a lot of people with lived experience, passionate about, you know, recovery, wellness, and 
helping transform the system. So uh, we were lucky to work with a lot of young people. And um, one of the things that they did was they wanted to create, uh, like you said, a game. And so they did this huge painting of a game board and personalized it and brought in all the wellness tools and and it looked like a community. So like when you're navigating a community, mm-hmm. what are some of the triggers you may have? And then what are your wellness tools? That was just brilliant that, that they came up with. Yes. And then, you know, all of that came from an environment where we created that team atmosphere where mm-hmm. everybody was a, is a leader and mm-hmm. can see whatever they envision, see it through. Yeah, that is so unapologetically black unicorny. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> <laughs> yay! Woo-hoo, right? I don't know what sounds un- unapologetically black unicorns make. Probably woohoo or woot woot or something like that. But um, that's exactly it's awesome. Whatever it is, yes, awesomeness. Right? That is um, exactly some of the traits. I think it. You know that it is about creating opportunities for people to see themselves as leaders and to help them put that into action. So um, even though, yes, you were the director, everybody is a leader. um, And you really did such a great job of um, putting that into action. Um, And a lot of folks that, you know, are, were at peers at the time, at the organization at the time are now in different leadership roles, many of the folks. So it's always great to see and reconnect. Yeah. So this brings me to the question. I'm sure many people would say, oh, Katera, yes, she's my mentor. She's she's sort of like the person I look up to. Who are some of the people that you've looked up to who you might consider your mentors? Well, I want to start with my mom, uh, honestly, because she taught me how to step up in times of distress. And I mean, she was the one that stepped up during our escape. My dad just said, we got to go. And my mom, you know, she hid money (laughs) (laughs) under in her clothes. She was like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. And when my dad got robbed and everything was taken and we ended up surviving off of what my mom did to, to survive. And she gave me responsibilities at a young age and encouraged me to speak up when we were discriminated against. So I, I, I see her strength always being that guide for me. My husband, he always had faith in me and encouraged me to step out of my comfort zone. And I always, when, I'm getting, when I get in the comfort zone, I like staying in. <laughs> and he will, he'll be like, no, you can, I see you can do this. And, mm-hmm. and I will be really resistant, but then I go with it. Mm-hmm. But in the peer movement, you know, I'm going to list the names and then I'm going to give you reasons because mm-hmm. uh, these are, you know, and I have many, uh, Jay Mahler, Sally mm-hmm. Zinman, Linford Gale, BJ North, and you, Terrence Myrick. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and uh, Jay taught me, don't agonize, organize. And that's a quote from Flo Kennedy, uh, a Black feminist and civil rights activist. Mm-hmm. And that's how he created the pool of consumer champions. Mm-hmm. He saw funds go all over the place from the Mental Health Services Act. So he, you know, just started bringing people together and helping them see how to uplift their voice and get the system to dedicate these funds to peer support efforts. Sally Zimmon, she is fierce about our rights and community engagement and always 
put that at the forefront when she mentored me. Mm-hmm. Um, Linford Gale. Linford was um, one of the first people that I, I remember bravely speaking up against racism, discrimination, for, you know, speaking up for people of color, LGBTQ individuals, individuals struggling with substance use, homelessness. He just expanded beyond just the mental health system yeah. and, and did it so elegantly that I thought, oh my God, I need to like try to- We need to be Linford. To... <laughs> <laughs> yes, rest in peace. Yes. BJ North, you know, when we talk about rap, who came in and I, you know, I was at Piers. I, I brought, I asked BJ, I said, can you come and do some trainings? I hadn't, I didn't know her. Right. Okay. And I, and I came into one of her trainings and saw her and I was like, Oh my God, you're incredible. I'd love to like get more support from you. And, and her mentorship was true mutuality. Cause <laughs> I, I was like, can you come in and do the trainings? And she was like, yes. And you will do them too. Yeah. Right. So I had no idea I was going to be thrown into like, you're learning to present also. And mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that. We were small enough to be able to, uh, for me to be able to put that time and energy, but it, it really helped me be the facilitator of meetings and groups that I am right now, because it was, she just really helped me connect those, those skills together. And uh, obviously, Karis, you've been so incredibly influential in my uh, life through my journey in the peer movement. I remember, you know, sometimes we get into these areas where it's us versus them, right? Like the peer against the family movement. And it yeah. doesn't make sense because those are where we may have lived experience, but we're also, we have families. Also, we are connected to our families or we're creating our own families or we mm-hmm. have our own you know, it doesn't have to be blood related, but we have our own definitions of family. And so whatever that was, you helped me see the importance of collaboration and engagement for true transformation. The other piece that you've done is, is every time we talk, you have these incredible, innovative ideas moving our peer field forward. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sometimes I'm like, people just need to listen. <laughs> I'm always like, listening. I'm like, oh, Karis, this is so right and you are on it and I really appreciate all of that because I think that success if I wasn't listening to all the you know all my mentors and the people in our community I don't think any of the success would be I mean it's not mine to claim it's our community yes yes you know my achievements are because of you and all the mentors that I've had and I and I love adding more to the list it's hard to list them all I know there's so many. Yeah, yeah. You know, I see you as a mentor as well because you've created safe space for me to speak openly about some things that when I speak openly about it, other places, you know, attacks come because people might not agree with Mm -hmm. how I'm trying to wrestle with an area where we have tension. And it's not saying, oh, I agree with it or I don't agree with it. I'm trying to understand it and wrestle with it from all sides. And yet it became sometimes, well, you know, Karis believes this. And it's like, but you never asked me what I believe. You, you never did, right? So, but but what I what I appreciate about, you know, um, getting to know you over the years and working with you over the years is that you created this space where I could question and I could even be open and say, well, you know, I don't know that I really agree with that, but, or, and, you know, maybe other people do and I need to understand what their 
um, perspective is so that I can put that into sort of the grinder and grind it out and figure out how I want to um, move forward on certain things. And, you know, you're talking about Linford Gale. Oh, my goodness. I really miss Linford. Mm. Um, and one of the Me things too. I remember, you know, about Linford is I didn't get to meet him until later on. Like, he was already doing his thing. He was already out there as a leader. And I, I met him later on. <laughs> and we didn't become friends, actually, until he showed up at a NAMI conference. And, like, he hunted me down. And he goes, you know, this isn't so bad. And I'm thinking, what did you think was happening at a NAMI conference? And um, I, what I appreciated was that he wanted to come and see that it was a, everybody has said, Mm -hmm. but I haven't seen it myself. And so he came and he was like, you know, this is not so bad. Now that I don't like, no, we're not doing that over there, but in general, this is okay. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, good. So it's not a hundred percent bad. He goes, no, no, my, you know, there might be 80% I don't agree with, but this 20%, yeah, mm, this is good. And I was like, okay, okay. So, uh, and then, um, you know, as he was, uh, you know, uh, on the commission and the first uh, commission chair, Mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, he had these beautiful dreadlocks, just love those dreadlocks. Yeah. And one day I saw him, I was like, wait, where the, they're gone. The dreadlocks, what happened? I remember. I I was like more, I was just like mourning the loss of the dreadlocks and they were his dreadlocks. (laughs) Um, And he said, you know, I um, have been speaking to people about what it takes to be a leader in a mixed group in which I am, you know, very much in the minority as a black man and as a black gay man. Mm -hmm. And he said, one of the things they recommended um, for me is it's fine for me to wear my dashiki and I will wear my dashiki. I will wear my, you know, ethnic clothing. I will be myself. And on occasion, yeah, I need to put on a suit. I need to put on a suit that I need to show up when I'm in the commissioner role that sometimes I need to show up in these ways, but I'm never not going to be fully myself. And I really appreciated that you know, I don't really, you know, me personally, I'm like, I, I don't know that I would have given up the locks. Okay. Quite frankly, (laughs) people don't like the locks. It doesn't make you any less professional. You are a professional, but I appreciate that appreciated that he was trying to figure out how to do this in a way that, uh, the group would be able to hear him. Cause I think at sometimes at some points he wasn't feeling fully heard. And if he thought that was getting in the way, he was trying to figure out, okay, well, let me get rid of this so people can just hear and move forward. And having, you know, him be the, was he the first person with lived experience as a chair? Yes, he was. Mm, All righty, then that's a a black and, you know, and gay and, you know, and a person with lived experience. He was the trifecta. But, um, you know, he was just an, an amazing, amazing leader. And of course, Jay Mahler as well. You know, we're not cases to be managed or people to be supported. Him and yeah. Ron Schreiber, you know, they have these great kind of like just classic sayings yeah. that, you know, still carry forth in our in our movement today. So I'm, I'm glad you've given um, recognition and that you got to know these people and they got to mentor you. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel very grateful for it. So as we kind of think about things that you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, we talked about rap and if there is one area in which you think we all need to be really thinking about and working towards for improvement, I know there are a lot. There are so many. (laughs) (laughs) If if you had to pick one area, what would it be? And then maybe what are some things that we could be doing? Well, I'm really passionate. One of the things is about our rights, protecting our rights. And I know there's a push throughout the country 
to make it easier to take people's rights away based on other people's fears. So someone that is not in a situation where they need to be locked up, out of fear, people are trying to put them in those locked facilities so that they don't relapse. But that's not, that's like a, uh, I, I call it probabilistic pessimism. So mm. probably that person will have a negative outcome, but there's no proof that that will be. And I just think that our rights really need to be protected because, you know, it's not good news for people of color, especially black or brown communities, when our rights are taken away based on fear. And that definitely impacts our communities disproportionately. And if it was, you know, take our rights away and put us in these incredible wellness zones, then you know, I may be, I may have a different opinion. But mm-hmm. I've seen those places that are called hospitals or you know uh, institutes for mental disease uh, actually is what they're called. But you know we call them hospitals in in the media to like make people think that they're really not locked facilities. And they are. They're locked facilities and they're they're places where people get secluded and restrained, chemically and physically restrained. And that's why we have organizations and federal, you know, uh, legislation that protects our rights because our these these institutions, these asylums have and still do traumatize people. There are also places where people can find wellness. Um, so I'm not trying to say that the wellness doesn't happen in these places, but majority of the time, you know, where you have facilities that seclude and restrain people and over-medicate them, it, it causes harm. And mm-hmm. I would like to see, you know, not only our rights protected, but as we ask for these beds, um, there are voluntary peer respite beds. Or you can get all kinds of services and 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 actually get the support in your community in a small home-like setting that doesn't feel like, you know, you're being treated like a criminal. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. So thanks for giving voice to that. I think you're you're right that that becomes another one of those tension points where people are either on one side of the issue or the other, and there's no nice in-between to kind of... Uh, help people move forward to support people who are really struggling. I mean, at the end of the day, these are folks who are really struggling and the the way that we kind of support them when they're not quote unquote willing to go into treatment or something like that is using these involuntary mechanisms. And, um, you know, it's, I, I've never heard anybody say, well, you know, we call them the hospital because that's what the press that's, that's palatable to people. And I always say, huh, that's interesting. Have you ever been in a psychiatric hospital? They are seriously not hospitable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's nothing hospitable about a psychiatric hospital. It feels very different. The first time I had a physical health condition where I had to be over, you know, several nights in a hospital was many years after I had had uh, been involuntarily hospitalized. So I was, when they told me that I would have to stay in the hospital, I just burst into tears and they couldn't understand what I was crying about. And I was like, no, I don't want to stay in the hospital. I don't want to stay in the hospital because I'd never been in, in anything in anything other than involuntarily hospitalized. So I had sort of this idea that even for a physical illness, Mm -hmm. that people wouldn't treat you very nicely, that um, people would ignore you, that um, people wouldn't talk to you, people wouldn't touch you if you wanted comfort. And um, so they said, well, there's no choice. And they took me up 
to my room and I was still crying. Um, and they said, and I was in a room by myself and they said, well, you know, you have a nice young lady down the hall. Would you like to be in the room with her? And I'm like, what does that mean? We don't want you to, why are you crying? And I'm like, well, I'm afraid. We don't want you to be afraid. And they were like stroking my hand. I was like, what is going on? Why are you people so nice? What, this is like, so not what I expected. And that's when I realized the difference between how you get treated when you have a a medical condition, a physical condition Mm -hmm. versus how you get treated when you have a psychiatric condition. So I do think that if people can understand the experience of people who are, um, uh, psychiatrically hospitalized, especially when it's involuntary, that, you know, you're trying to, to balance this uh, duty to care and, um, you know, risk of harm. That's, that's kind of what's going on. And it's like, well, we've got to care for the person because they, they, we don't want them to harm themselves. And, um, you know, but there is harm that happens. It's trauma. Yeah. And that trauma um, may result in people saying, I will never come back to a hospital again. I will not be involved in mental health treatment. I will not, you know, so really did you, did you, you did your duty to care, yet there was harm caused by that duty to care. So I love how you talk about, you know, creating uh, communities of wellness and spaces and houses um, within a community in which a person can really have that hospitable, caring support from people who've been there, you know, peers and, you know, even family supporters to support the family who's scared about their loved one. And they want to know their loved one is okay. And they want to know when my loved one comes home, how can I best support them? Mm -hmm. And so where's the support for the family while the, their loved one is going through the crisis as well. We could do a heck of a lot better. I'm with you girl. High five it all like, (laughs) yeah. Okay. High fiving on that one. So, you know, I just, again, you know, want to thank you for everything that you do, Katera. You have really uh, been um, just a phenomenal leader, especially as a young person or younger person, young, young, well, everybody's younger than me now, but um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) yes, Um, and that you're unapologetic in your approaches while also being just so um, welcoming and open and empowering for folks. Um, so thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for being on the podcast. Look thank at you. you. Oh my <laughs> God. And happy belated birthday. Yeah. This is it going to be a month of celebrating if not a year. Yep. Yeah. If it's not a year <laughs> of celebrating. So we uh, just again, want to thank you and um, encourage everybody to join us again next week. We'll be here on Apologetically Black Unicorns. 